Election 2021. Who will be the next Prime Minister of the Bahamas? Will Dr. Hubert Minnis and the Free National Movement, or FNM, hold on to the government? Will Mr. Philip Brave Davis and the Progressive Liberal Party, or PLP, snatch the win? Or will there be a surprise? Hi there, I'm Pamela Ferguson, Vice President of Investments at CFAL, and joining me in studio today are my colleagues Lachelle White, Investments Manager, and Angelo Butler, Senior Analyst. In this two-part podcast series titled Bahamas Election 2021, we will discuss the state of the Bahamian economy in the wake of Hurricane Dorian and COVID-19, the recession, the national debt, the state of the healthcare and education infrastructure, and unemployment, and all issues that we believe should decide this election. Michelle, Angelo, let's begin. What is the state of the Bahamian economy today? Right now, um, the Bahamian economy is seeing record debt and deficit levels. And we also have depressed revenues, and that's mainly due to the pandemic. Um, the government has not been able to rein in spending um, during the pandemic, and that is understandable because they have had to give a lot of support to individuals and businesses um, throughout the pandemic. But right now, we, um, over the past few years, in fact, we have seen um, revenues that have trended downward a bit over the past couple of years. And then we've seen expenditures continue to trend upwards. And the debt is just um, at epic proportions, I would say. Um, this is not something that anybody has seen in their lifetime. Um, we have a debt to GDP that is nearly 100%. And it's going to be a tough task to get us out of this position that we are in now. Um, I often dream about if maybe somebody can, you know, just give us $10 billion and <laughs> preferably in USD and, you know, we can just pay off the debt, but that's not going to happen. So what we really need is a plan to reduce our debt. And I think that should be um, one of the main focus of this election. Well, just echoing um, what Lachelle said, um, you know, the economy is in a bit of a difficult um, position. Um, fortunately, we've you know, gotten through the worst of it, I think, early on in the pandemic when we were um, fully shut down, you know, no activity, no revenue coming in, um, I think was really, you know, kind of hitting rock bottom. So we have um, somewhat recovered a bit. Um, we do see, you know, increased levels of tourism, both stopover as well as, you know, we're now seeing um, the cruise ship. So we do see some improvements in government revenue, but we're still running high um, levels of deficit, um, the debt to GDP percentage will continue to grow in the short term. And, you know, we, we have to continue to look for ways to innovate, um, safely open the economy so that we don't, you know, exacerbate what is currently going on, which, you know, over time could lead to us um, trending back to where we were early on in the pandemic. So, you know, it is difficult, but, you know, if we just need to continue focusing on recovering and, and bouncing back from where we were a year ago. Yeah, we are in a rut, and I think we will definitely have to do some things differently going forward if we are going to climb out of this. Now, one of the key questions asked of the voter during an election is, are you better off today 
than you were since the last election. So our focus on this question will be on the economy. So I ask, is the Bahamian economy under the leadership of FNM leader Dr. Hubert Minnis better off today than it was four and a half years ago? I would say no. And, you know, I, I won't say that's directly um, a result of um, Dr. Minnis and the government. Um, you know, we're, I think we're all aware of the factors and challenges that were faced. Um, and I'm sure persons are tired of hearing about Dorian and, and COVID from the perspective of the government using that as to reasons why um, the economy is where it is. And yes, things could have been done differently, but nonetheless, um, you know, given what's happened, I think in any event, we would have been a bit worse off um, than we were in 2017. So in absolute terms, no, we're not better off today, but I think there are some legitimate reasons why we're in the position we are today. Um, and like I said, yes, you know, some decisions could have been made better to maybe make it better than it is. Um, but simply put, we're not. And I think the entire world economy in some way is, you know, a bit more challenged than it was in 2017. Yeah, I, I agree with Angelo. I think it's a, a tough comparison due to, I know we're tired of saying it, but due to Hurricane Dorian and the pandemic, which basically brought unprecedented change um, to the global economy, in fact. Um, but I know that there have been a bit of bright spots here and there, but continuously over the past decades or so, like I said before, we've had um, increasing deficits and we are at um, a point where we really need to, instead of um, going with all the partisan politics, I think that we really need to get together and create a plan about how we're going to turn the economy around. Yeah, I think a lot of our issues are structural. And a lot of times when we ha are in the midst of crisis, I, you know, it's commonly said that that's an opportunity to do things better or to be better. And I think we continue to miss those opportunities when we are in crisis. And so I think that's the challenge with us as we stand here today. I look at some of the numbers, and you know I like numbers <laughs> to support my arguments. But when we look at, and when we're comparing four and a half years ago to today, we look at our deficit to GDP. And for our listening audience who may not know what a deficit is, it is simply your revenues that you collect less your expenses or expenditure. The government revenues less the expenses or the expenditure. And so if government collects more in revenues than it spends, then you have a surplus. If government spends more than it collects in revenue, you have a deficit. And that's what we've been continuously running deficits. And those deficits are just simply debt because you have to borrow the money to, to plug the hole. So in saying that, I look back at 2016, 2017, uh, that fiscal year that ended um, in June when the PLP had just left office, and we had a deficit of about 5.4%. And then I look back at our current deficit, and we're like 6.18%. It's not much difference. So we have this structural problem in terms of the deficit. I look at revenues. And we had a revenue to GDP um, back um, four and a half years ago of 16.78%. And I look at our revenues to GDP, it's about 
percent, and that's the 2019, 20 year when we had two billion dollars in, in in revenues, which was pretty high um, when you compare it to the past. I look at our expenditure, and expenditure to GDP was like 22.2 percent. And then when I look back, 2016-17, expenditure to GDP was 22.2%. And when I look at our current expenditure to GDP, is 22.13%. And then we all know about unemployment. We have structurally high unemployment, around about 10 12%. And, and as we continue to go through these crisis points, and we will continue because we live in a hurricane belt, so we can expect to always have a hurricane, and we see these global events that come up every so often, I think what needs to happen is drastic change need to happen in order for us to set the pace for a better and a fairer future. And I, I think part part of you know what plays into that is you know this short term um, political chase, right? So even when the pandemic started, you know, a lot of persons said this was an opportunity to get off tourism and, you know, look for new avenues and, you know, expand the economy. But, you know, in my head, I was like, you know, there's going to be so much pressure on the government to, you know, people are going to need jobs um, immediately. And I'm said, you know, I said, we're going to resort right back to what we know can quickly get us right back, right? The large scale tourism projects where you get some construction jobs and at the end of it, you get some tourism jobs because, you know, there's going to be pressure on, on the politicians. And so I think we have to, you know, no country has ever changed or reformed itself without, you know, a long-term plan that involves some short-term pain. And I don't think um, our politicians for the most part are willing to, you know, possibly deal with that pain and the possibility of getting voted out um, to make those real structural changes, like you said, that would put you in a better position 15, 20 years from today. And you, you, made, you said a very important word, plan. And I think that is what is lacking, a plan. And, you know, we have the two, we're in an election, we have the two major political parties. And so I think what we expect is on that level, there should be long-term plans that when you have um, leaders that come in, you know, you there's a blueprint that you can follow. You don't have to follow everything to the T, but their ideology is in there and you can follow that as you, as you go with some master plan that you have for the country. Because the reality is, if the Progressive Liberal Party does a plan when the FNM comes in, they're not going to say they're going to follow that plan. If the FNM does a, a, a national plan, then the, the Progressive Liberal Party may say, we're not going to follow that. But if these organizations have a plan that they articulate for the country and we can see and follow it, then we can see and step um, where they're going. But I think that is what's lacking, that plan. And so then you have these short-term um, um, adjustments or these short-term moves in order to, to be reelected five years down the road. I agree. I believe that governments um, should be continuous. And I do believe that we have to have um, more bipartisan focus because we are at the point where we really need to save our economy. And like you said, Pam, we need a long-term plan. And Angelo mentioned, okay, in the short term, there may be some pain. But I think that if you can properly articulate a long-term plan to your citizens and you can say, okay, this is what's going to happen now and you can help them and you can educate them and help them understand what they can expect to see as we move forward, um, that it can probably lessen the pain. But I don't think that we can t continue to go 
the way of all these short-term plans and then we just sort of ignore, we kick the can down the road of the things that we don't want to deal with now and then they sort of balloon into these major issues. And like you said earlier, Pam, like you alluded to earlier, um, I believe the quote is never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think that we have let um, the two twin crises that we have go to waste by simply just resorting to um, what has been done in the past instead of trying to forge a new way forward. So there should be yeah, some <laughs> spending cuts after the next general election, no matter who wins. What cuts are proposed in the FNM's uh, manifesto uh, and the PLP's 20? 21 10-point plan? Um, I didn't actually see um, any parties um, talk about spending cuts, whether it be the FNM or PLP or, or the third um, parties, but I, I think that it's something that we need to discuss. I think that we're often afraid um, to talk about spending cuts, but there is a lot of wasted, wasteful spending in government um, and Perhaps that's something that we can look at. I know that um, before I think the FNM had mentioned um, to have like maintenance plans, um, uh, maintenance across government, um, across government industries. But I think that there is a lot of wasteful spending. And I did read of interest that if you do like key performance indicators for um, your various government ministries, I think that's something that we can also look at to say, make sure that we're putting um, spending in the right place. And, and we, I always say this, we often miss um, the, the goal of doing productive spending and we do a lot of wasteful spending. And this, this, can't, this cannot continue because we, we need to get to a point where where we can have um, spending that is productive and that um, contributes to our economy rather than this structural, wasteful spending that we continue to have um, for the past um, few decades. I, I looked through as well, and the only thing I saw was where the PLP um, said that there was some wasteful spending that they believe can be um, you know, removed. But I, you know, there's no committed were to say we're going to cut spending in, in none of the manifestos um, that I've seen. You know, I've, I don't remember the quote exactly, but it says a leader will never get elected if he gives, you know, his patients a medicine before the election. So, <laughs> I, you, you know, it's, it's difficult to expect the body to say, hey, we're going to come in and cut spending because, um, you know, it's just not a popular thing to say. So I think it's equally difficult and maybe even disingenuous to then make the electorate believe that you're going to give all of these um, goodies to them. Like the list of goodies um, is very long. And then when you get in there, you can't because then you're going to shake the trust of the electorate. So if you cannot make promises on, on spending cuts, then don't go overboard with, with this wish list of things that, that you want um, to give them because it's just going to be bad down the road. Yeah, and, and on both sides, you see that there's endless promises. But like you say, this just continues to breed mistrust between the public and, um, you know, the, the dominant two parties, right? And I think you're starting to see a bit more of, you know, a populist movement in a sense um, with some of the third parties because, you know, they're tired of hearing um, the politicians say, hey, we're going to do this, we're not going to do this we're not going to raise taxes. And then the first thing they do is raise taxes. So we need to stop this mistrust and try to 
just be honest with people um, as opposed to selling dreams, but we're in dream season, so... Like you mentioned uh, in the PLP's 10-point plan, they, I, what, what I pulled out as it relates to spending cuts, and this is, I'm digging for this, stop uh, financial leakage in, the publics, in our public sector, and they um, um, noted including insider deals. So they want to stop the leakage. Um, they didn't say how they were going to do it. They didn't point out to where they're going to zoom in on doing that. Then the F&M just had promote Fiscal discipline. Um, I don't know what that is. I mean, and they didn't break it down to say what it is. I don't think we have a problem with our revenues. The problem is not our revenues because it is what it is. And if you're making $2,400 a month and that's all you're making, you don't have a trust fund, uh, you don't have any investments where you're getting income, but then you want to spend $5,000 per month, then eventually you're going to come to financial ruin. It's plain and it's, it's just that simple. And I think that's the way our economy is. We can only do so much, but we have successive administrations. I think it's cultural. I think at this point now it's cultural that just overspend. We, we live above our means. And a lot of that, like was mentioned, Lachelle, is waste. It's just plain and simple waste. And I believe if we can cut out the waste, then you know, I think we would be better off to learn to live within our means. We look at the previous administration that bailed out Bank of the Bahamas, right? Spent over $100 million to bail out the Bank of the Bahamas. And a lot of that was for loans that people took out that they couldn't pay. And they're having a difficulty probably selling some of the assets at fair value. So you just bail out Bank of the Bahamas to help a certain segment of society, that were able to, to take out loans and cannot pay. And then this administration continued on that vein because they put some money to bail out Bank of the Bahamas. And then you have the Grand Lucayne Hotel spending over $100 million to bail out that hotel. So all of this, that's, that's over $200 million right there that can be used for precious public service to improve the infrastructure, to help with economic growth down the road. But we have successive administrations just waste the people money and then they turn around and want to, in, to increase taxes on the backs of Bahamians in order to pay for the waste. And until we come to the point where we realize that is wrong and we have to do better and change, then I think we're gonna continue on this path until we are forced to stop. So a fiscal consolidation strategy should include tax rises that are fair, spending cuts that are equitable, and economic growth, which is essential for recovery. So we're going to go into each one of those, and I want you, because this is about the election and this is about the platforms of the major political parties, I want you to first identify any tax rises that are fair within uh, the party platform. And if you don't see any, let's discuss what tax rises we think or where can they get additional monies um, from that would be fair to, to all Bahamians. I, I did see um, some mention of tax, better tax collection, um, especially um, in the area of real property taxes. I believe that in the... Um, PLP's 10-point plan, they did mention that they wanted to 
decrease um, VAT to to 10%. I'm not sure how that will work. But I, I think, and they also said that they wanted to enhance the revenue collection unit, I believe. Um, I think that we do have, just as we have wasteful spending, we have a lot of revenues that are left on the table, whether it be, and most likely from the failure to collect taxes from those who should be should be paying them. So I think that we do need an overhaul of our tax structure to make it fair and equitable for everyone. Um, usually um, the small man, he goes in the grocery store and he has he has to, to pay VAT, but you don't know if there are businesses and other companies that are getting away from paying their fair share of, of taxes, which they are mandated to pay. So I, I do believe that we have we have to look at strengthening our tax system. And I'm not sure if a VAT reduction is the only answer. I think that there also we also have to look at customs duties. Um, basically, we are paying a double tax because you're paying customs duties at the border and then you're also paying VAT, um, which is inclusive of those customs duties. So I think that ju- they're just going to have to be a little bit of thinking outside the box um, in order to to strengthen our tax collection, which will enhance our revenue base. And I, I didn't see um, much explicit um, you know, tax increases. I think I saw in the PLP's plan where they um, promised to go after the high-end homes, um, you know, foreign-owned homes, make sure they're paying adequate um, real property tax. So I guess that will c- kind of come under the um, revenue enhancement unit. I, I do think we need to look at ways to get more um, tax dollars out of tourists. Um, you know, there's only, let's say, 400,000 payments, um, very small tax base. But if we have, you know, just in stopover visitors, we have four times that number coming here. So, you know, if we could get an extra $10, $15 out of them somehow or an extra $10 out of the you know, five, six million cruise ship passengers that come here, then, you know, we, we're talking significant um, sums of revenue. Um, but I think at the end of the day, fair tax means, you know, those who can afford to pay, um, pay and those who can't, um, you assist them. So, you know, there's nothing explicitly stated, but, you know, I think we will have some sort of tax increases. I'm of the belief that VAT is going to go up. Um, you know, we're seeing the corporate Blasphemy. income tax um, <laughs> you know, being thrown around. Um, even, you know, if they do things like NHI, there may be some, you know, a bit more income tax and things of that nature. To your point where you spoke about getting more from the tourists, I saw in the F&M plan where they plan to put home porting under the Hotel Encouragement Act. Um, and so that may, <laughs> that look like more concessions. Um, I, I disagree with, yeah, with, I, with I that. saw that. I think they want to do an act similar to the Hotels Encouragement Act. And my first was, um, reaction to that was, so we're going to give even more concessions. And I just think that we need to sit down and really look at these concessions that we give and how are they benefiting us? So we're just basically giving away the farm, so to speak. Um, and um at the end of the day, Bahamians get left holding the bag because now the tax burden is on us. 
And then I think it needs to be transparent. We need to know what are these concessions and it shouldn't be left up to, you know, you go in, in the back room with, with some politicians and negotiate concessions, but it should be tabled in the House of Assembly. I, I read an article a few weeks ago where it said that, you know, we have forego about 300 plus million dollars in taxes and over 200 million was for BPL tax on, on fuel. And to the PLP plan about VAT, I personally think it should be reduced to 10% and parked there indefinitely. Um, I think we have to, like you mentioned, Angela, look for creative ways and the shell to earn taxes. But I think that regressive tax on the backs of Bohemian, because we still have the custom duties. They, there's, there's still custom duties and it's just, it's just a lot. So I think I agree with them to reduce it. And I think it should be parked. There, they said one year, I think it should be, and the FNM also said they're going to grant tax inducements and incentives comparable to that in line with those given to foreigners engaged in the same field. I think that needs to be transparent. I, I think it needs to be out there so everybody knows if you're doing this, this is what you're going to get. And it should be across the board, not necessarily you have this arrangement with this group and that arrangement with the, with, with the other group. And they also, um, I think both parties talk about transforming the tax system to a more equitable and progressive um, um, tax system, but they don't tell you how they're going to do that. And I think that is what is important because when we talk about progressive taxes, you're talking about um, it's equitable where when you, if you are under a certain amount, you pay that amount, but those who are, who make more, pay more um, of, of the taxes. And I don't think we generally have a problem with that. I think the issue though is if those tax dollars are not being used to help build um, a better country as opposed to being wasted on stuff that do not help us overall in the end. Yeah, I, I agree with that because I know that we often say, okay, if you impose an income tax on me, okay, I pay my income tax, but yet when I drive to work, I'm driving in all sorts of potholes, the traffic lights aren't working, I'm just passing the crypt buildings, um, the place is falling apart, where are my tax dollars going? So I, I just, I, I mean, I feel that if you want to increase taxes or if you want to introduce new taxes, like you said, Pam, we have to be transparent about the way that they are going to be used. And we have to ensure that they are used and those monies are put in the right places so that the populace can see what their tax dollars is being spent on. And I don't think the, the concessions in and of themselves are bad, but I think you know, and this could probably be a partnership with maybe Central Bank, University of Bahamas, where they actually do studies on on the benefits of incentives. So like you mentioned with the cruise ship um, encouragement act, you know, if they do that, you know, if, if you lay out that, okay, this is going to cost the government 10 million um, in revenue, the concession, but I can see that, you know, from persons flying in, I'll still get back seven, eight million dollars in additional tax revenue as a government you know, then it provides some sort of benefit. So yes, you know, I may get two million less or so, but at least I'm still getting something back on the, the airfare when they come and stay at the hotels, putting money in the taxi pocket. So make sure that, you know, studies are done to show this, not just, oh, we're giving them 20 million. And we hope that, you know, we somehow make it up, make it up 
um, on the back end. Yeah, I, I agree. Concessions are, uh, are given around the world. People give um, incentives to, to companies and big companies to come in and to invest. But there has to be a cost-benefit analysis where we are given this concession, but we are also getting something back. And it's not just that you are going to provide us with minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage type jobs for all the concessions that we are giving you. Well, Angelo and Lachelle, we have come to the end of this podcast series, the first part, titled Bahamas Election 2021. Thank you, our listening audience. We sincerely appreciate you and we appreciate your feedback and your support of the C-File podcast series. We can be reached at 502-7010 or via our website at www.cfile.com. Until next time.